We were mean to people this week, generally. Uh, four of the five scripts, we take somebody to task. Uh, one of them, it might not be clear who's being taken to task, and I'll get to that. But let's just mow them down. You know, lately, we've kind of dealt with one or two, but uh, I think we had kind of a fun week. I, I apparently really like to attack people, and uh, at least verbally or or uh, in the written word, literally. Is that that's not even right? But okay, if <laughs> you want to correct, or we just move on, just pretend. We move on, but you started off with Mister Vehement, which I thought was a good title, Mister Vehement, and uh, yes, it it sums up. Al Gore, as Rush Limbaugh, Limbaugh used to uh, to say it in one word, uh, he basically, and many of you maybe saw the the film clips. If you go to the website and go to Mr. Vehement, uh, this is commonsense.org. You can hit that link and go see it for yourself. But I first remember Al Gore in an August many years ago, I think in, in 2000 or something when he was running for president, screaming in August that the world is sweltering under global warming. And I'm thinking, actually, you might want to look at a calendar. But but Al Gore has been the leader politically of climate change. And there's a couple of things that always stick out to me. One, I went, I spent my own money. I couldn't justify somebody else having to pick it up. Uh, but I went to see what he, he's, look, this is a big thing. He's saying this, let's hear him out so that we can always say we heard him out and it's full of, and what most surprised me watching that movie, the science, I figure we'll, you know, we'll find out. I don't figure I'm Mr. Science expert and I know Al Gore isn't Mr. Science expert, but what's the solution? And the thing that was so surprising to me was with a cataclysmic, you know, thing happening with all these major forces of nature, how possibly can we do something? Oh, turns out it's easy. We just adjust the tax code a little bit. We just give them government a little more power here or there. And everything just works out. Temperature, you know, a, a nice, cool, never a storm. He didn't quite say that, but it was, it was so easy. And I thought, this is weird. This is weird that you would say it's this huge a problem and then suggest that you could just kind of do a couple things here. Uh, we might need two or three bills throughout a decade period to set everything right and, and move on. The other thing that occurs to me is that we have heard numerous times that 10 years from now, if we haven't done X, then why is going to happen? Then, then it's it's hopeless after that. We'll never be able to. And then the 10 years passes. 2006, he made the prediction that one of our uh, uh, great readers left a comment uh, reminding us that in 2006, Al Gore had said in 10 years, you know, we have 10 years basically to stop this, you know, cataclysmic climate change that's happening. These guys are so full of it. And you you kind of wonder, why aren't they called out on it more? Well, because we actually live in this dystopian society in which most of the media doesn't want to call them out. They're on their side. They only call out the people on the other side. And they're generally not talking about climate change uh, on the conservative side or the Republican side. Um, so it's it's, again, 
you know, these just completely ridiculous predictions, like, like somehow they can read the future and they're, they're taken as serious by, I mean, there's all kinds of people being paid real salaries and with real jobs and they drive in and then they go out there and they, they have a microphone in front of their face and they act like Al Gore is actually a sensible, reasonable human being. You know, my problem is kind of the science or just sort of the big picture data end of the science. I'm not so much considered about all the data out there is, but one or two datum, a datum. And one datum that always interests me is that uh, in the Ice Age several times and in the Little Ice Age just a few hundred years ago, the parts per million share of the atmosphere of carbon dioxide was so low that the tree line and the mountains was going down. And at some point, we were very close to ending life on the planet if there weren't enough, wasn't enough carbon dioxide. It was really low. It was less than 200 parts per million. And somehow, at the end of the Little Ice Age, things started warming up and, and carbon dioxide came out of the oceans. And, uh, and, and we produced it too. Human beings did. What legislation did they pass at that time to achieve that that weather result? It's one of the most amazing things uh, because there was no <laughs> overarching plan, and there was there was warming at that time. That's what that's what caused that's what saved the planet from death, from a death of all life or death of most life. And scientists to this day theorize that the reason civilization was so long in coming to the human species. It only happened within the last 6,000 years or so, was that during the ice ages, there wasn't enough carbon dioxide for mass agriculture. It looks like we may have saved the planet. Burning burning fuel and doing agriculture or whatever, whatever else, and whatever else brought us out a little ice age, uh, saved the planet. So I, it's sort of a gift horse at the mouth. They're saying the gift horse didn't save us. They never want to address that. And so they say that thing that happened is going to end life on the planet. And it's just not true. Life likes carbon dioxide because that's what that's what makes things green. Plants like right, carbon right. dioxide, and it gives us oxygen. I'm sure that somehow it could get too hot for for life, but of course, it, now it's more climate change, and you know it's not it's warming. But the the inability I have always respected in my life people who know stuff but especially people who know stuff well enough to explain it to me. And Al Gore, and to others, Al Gore, as part of this, the big clip was that he said that every day, what we are doing through different activity, I don't have my phone turned off, what kind of kind of podcast person am I? I'll make some anyway. noise here. There's, there's some noise too. Let's all do it. Let's all do it. But uh, now I'm going to lose my train of thought. But Al Gore was explained something really simply, uh, didn't he? Uh, oh, and, and instead Al Gore is saying that every single day we are releasing into the atmosphere the equivalent of 600,000 atom bombs like were dropped on Hiroshima. So every day we are doing the equivalent of 600,000 Hiroshimas in our atmosphere. Now that sounds terrible, especially the nuclear fallout that must be yeah. falling on us. 
But of course, because because what was the problem here with Hiroshima? I mean, the people of Hiroshima and Nagasaki would have really liked it if you blew it up up there. Give me a fighting chance to run away. I mean, this is the kind of wild, ridiculous leadership. I mean, this guy was vice president. If people, if people in Palm Beach County could have figured out the stupid ballot that they had, the whole system. I actually have one in my basement. Somebody sent me one. Um, but that they used in 2000, Al Gore would be president, would have been president. This guy is, I mean, that's just the most ridiculous comment. But it's seen as, you know, virtuous that he, can, and, and if he's exaggerating, he's exaggerating to wake us up about the catastrophe that we face, that we know of because he's making stuff up, apparently. Because it, and I'm all open for, and and we've written about the idea of mitigating against climate. I mean, it may be, whether it's it's all because of, you know, industrialists that uh, that the world's teetering on collapse. Okay, well, how do you... How do you protect against rising oceans? Well, it seems to me you buy, you build some levees and stuff. Um, you you do things to react to that. And there's almost no thought about that. It's always on the side of we're going to fix it through some sort of stopping people from doing this, even though we're rushing to do more of it. You know, one time years ago, they they brought up the amount of electricity that was being used at the Gore household, and it was like the equivalent of like fifteen people. And uh, and you know, he, he's trying to save the planet, but he's doing more of of what he says is destroying it. It's he's not destroying the planet, I don't think. But I mean, I, I don't begrudge him using fifteen times the electricity as long as he pays his bill. But uh, but. This is the kind of silly world that we live in. And uh, and so much of it is wrapped around science and academics and and officials in such a way that, well, how dare you? He knows uh, he's got this degree. It's like we're at the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, they got a degree. <laughs> it was the guy behind the curtain who made it all up. You know, it's we've become ridiculous in our modern world. And I think I think people cross the spectrum, lots of regular people, some very political, some not so political, see it. And it's it's scary. Uh, the main point of your piece, though, was just making fun of Al Gore. Yes, basically. <laughs> I can get into that. <laughs> you know, I was thinking, as she said, I was thinking, oh, no, did I miss some great thing? And I was thinking, no, I pretty much just made fun of Al Gore. Well, I used to do something back in the 90s when Earth and the Balance was in the bookstores. I, I would visit new bookstores a lot in those days, you know, the days before Amazon. And I would just go in the, the bookstores and, and there was all, and, and they literally had, my favorite bookstore literally had Earth and the Balance as if it were the Bible on a lectern. And, uh, and so I would open it up randomly and invariably read one sentence and laugh because it was so bad. The book was, is a truly a, an awful book. Speaking of the emperors have no clothes, <laughs> on Tuesday, we dealt with the brilliant billionaire buffoon we all know and love as Bill Gates. And I made it a point in this piece to 
One explanation for Bill Gates is he's evil. And that's not the point I make in this piece. I just don't address that. I don't know that if he's evil or not. I'm going to just judge it in the more generous way. He's a buffoon. And here's why. He, in, we, he gave an interview in Davos. And his his big thing, or actually, I, I take that back. I'm wrong there. He wasn't in Davos. He was in uh, he was in Australia uh, at the Lowy Institute. And Australia, of course, has had a lot of of uh, it's in the wake of all the Davos stuff. But um, anyway, uh, um, they've had a lot of fight with the with China um, because uh, they suggested that maybe there should be an, an investigation into COVID and how it really happened, especially since all of a sudden China's like hidden all the evidence and destroyed everything and won't talk. Uh, and has taken stuff offline and all kinds of things like that, that we don't hear much about. We hear some in the papers, but it should have been a huge story, except we can't say anything negative about China because they've spent a lot of money with our newspapers. Uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, millions. It's at Common Sense. This is commonsense.org. If you go and, uh, and you know, Google, not Google, we don't Google, but search, you can find the, the places. Of course, you can do it on Google instead of it. This is commonsense.org. But what fun would that be? As soon as Australian official says, look, there ought to be an investigation. It's public. It, it's, it zooms around the world because nobody else has the guts to say it because China threatens everybody and they got a huge marketplace. If you're a businessman, you want the money, money, money. You want the market there. You want to shut your mouth. If you're the NBA, you know, you're, you want to beat up the guy who said anything, you know, good about human rights. And so with this statement, China embargoes stuff, does all kinds of tariffs on, on beef, on, on, you know, different products that Australia is selling most of them to China. And this is true throughout that entire region. Japan that is saying it's going to double its, its uh, uh, spending on military affairs is saying so, even knowing that it, it's all aimed to block China and their biggest trading partner is China. You know, now they have a lot of trading partners, but the biggest one is China. And that's true for almost all of these countries. And yet they're pushing back because they still don't want to be gobbled up and, and kind of have a boot stamp on their on their neck. And uh, so so that's what's been going on in Australia. And they've had all kinds of problems with that relationship. And they're a little bit closer than we are. So it's a little bit scarier. Bill Gates talks about the U.S. relationship with China. And his main point is that. China has the China growing and becoming more powerful has been a great thing for the world. And of course, it's good that Chinese people who are living in dire poverty are not living in dire poverty. That's what we want. And of course, that wasn't produced magically by Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. They realized at some point we ought to get the heck out of the way. I mean, one of the stories behind the wet markets, which, of course, I don't think that's where the virus necessarily came from. I think there's as much evidence, if not more, that it came from, a, a you know, the, the Institute for Virology in, in Wuhan. But however it came from, they do have these wet markets that are, you know, not stuff we would have in America on the corner. 
they would come saying, no, 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 we're shutting this down. We're not killing live animals right here. And then, you know, having packaging them up and, and, uh, and you go. And the reason that they did that years ago was they were, lots of people were starving to death. And they basically, it was one of the first things they did to allow more economic activity and let people keep gains was to say, you know, if you can raise some chicken and roosters and, and whatever else, uh, you know, whatever other animals do it. And, and so a lot of these wet markets uh, got going and so on anyway. And, and now I am <laughs> my train of thought on where I was going with the wet markets. Well, I don't really know where you were going other than we're dealing with Bill Gates and his apologetics for China and then his admissions, as you go on to say, about what China is not. In this talk, Bill Gates makes it clear that China's not a, uh, you know, look, they're not a democracy, which they sure aren't. Um, and he even said, you know, look, they, they didn't get people vaccinated quickly enough. And he talks about them as an outlier that they're still awfully authoritarian for the level of wealth they've created, which to me is a very, it's like the expert in Washington looking at the numbers on something and deciding, you know, oh, that's a little uh, little high on the wealth side compared to the, boy, they don't have any freedom side. And no real appreciation, not one word uttered, about China's committing a genocide right now. Almost, you know, most of the world recognizes that. There's just too much evidence to ignore. And apparently enough money that a lot of people still ignore. But it's, you know, that's there. And yet Bill Gates doesn't mention anything about it. And my message in this piece was pretty simple. Keep that in mind. This person talks about world governance, and here's what he doesn't think about. He doesn't think about people living in gulags. He doesn't think about people being silenced, like in Hong Kong, where you can't say anything that's not sweet and loving about your government, or you're going to go to jail maybe for life. And... You know, these are this is real stuff. The the concentration camps in in and that's what they are, uh, re-education and, and it, come on, this is this is ugliness, and someone of his stature doesn't say a word about it. It's uh, Al Gore who's who's screaming about six hundred thousand uh, Hiroshima. Uh, atom bombs and uh, and Bill Gates, who can't muster a word about a genocide that's going on in our world and a, and a government that is just totalitarian and brutal. He underplays the whole the whole totalitarian angle by calling it a little more autocratic than most places. That's is that your basically your point is their level of autocratism, authoritarianism is is fairly high for their wealth level, as if usually you would expect an authoritarian regime to not be as wealthy as China is. And I guess that's true, because China's been a lot more successful authoritarian regime than most of them are. But a large part of that, I think, has been help from the U.S. and from Europe and others, but especially from the U.S., 
and and ridiculous sorts of help. I mean, we at, at thisiscommonsense.org, we had the piece about uh, Donald Trump who challenged this stupid postal treaty that had China sending trinkets from Beijing to Washington, D.C. for cheaper than I can send to Washington, D.C. From here, I live 25 miles south. Now, we purposely want to advantage the businesses in China. And, and you can say, oh, that's small stuff. But, you know, look into the issue. I challenge it. Look into the issue of the advantages that we give China. I'm reading the book Year of the Rat at the moment, uh, which is about Bill Clinton and the the Chinese funding of, of all his presidential elections and and uh, and basically had targeted him, uh, according to this book and according to what seems to be pretty solid evidence. I don't believe they've ever been sued by Mr. Clinton on any of this, um, but that that when he was governor. They had uh, the CCP had already identified him as somebody they might want to get close to, as they've been shown to do with a lot of people. The fact that they're trying to get close to you doesn't make you a bad person. The fact that you are allowing them to fund your operations and you're appointing people to government positions that go out of their way to help the communist Chinese genocidal totalitarians against your own country, that is sort of a problem. And, uh, Boy, I haven't quite finished the book. I'm at about uh, page 190 or something. It's like 100, uh, 250 pages or something. So um, maybe they recan everything in the last chapter. I'll let you know. But but I would, uh, having not even finished it, I would encourage anybody to read it. It's It's fascinating to me, having tried to pay attention, how much I don't know about... Um, you know, politics and and government and what has gone on. And especially, I think, anything that doesn't involve a lot of people, American regular folks like you and me, we're apt not to hear about it. Um, and it's, you know, we not only do we have so much of our government that's secret, um, but anything that's happening, happening, you know, in foreign affairs it's a lot less likely to be covered than whatever, you know, is bleeding on your local street. You know, Bill Clinton was also chummy chummy with our autocrats in America because he was part of the Iran Contra nonsense with that weird business about uh, drug running uh, from the, from Central and South America into Arkansas of all places. It's certainly alleged. If someone said you have to, you have to guess which one. I'd say he was involved, but but there's not really solid evidence that he was. It's just that as governor, um, I mean, he, he well, it's just a long rabbit hole. But uh, you know, uh, appointing people who were the medical examiner who were just crooked as the day is long and have been now discovered to be crooked in every way. I the the people who were judges and the state medical examiner and the governor and the lieutenant governor and others <laughs> when I was a teenager in Arkansas have almost all gone to prison uh as I became an adult <laughs> and I'm not taking credit for it I'd like to but I can't but uh <laughs> but it is pretty amazing uh Clinton's one of the few who is not gone to prison but uh, his lieutenant governor became governor and then spent his time in prison and and the, the so much corruption and it's i mean 
China buys people off all over the world, and that's scary. But boy, I think they're pretty successful right here in the USA. And, you know, it's, and it's, you know, it, so much when you think of that, it's like, well, we need to be careful of Chinese scientists, but that's not the problem. It's not Chinese people. This is just as likely to be non-Chinese people selling out to the Chinese or the Russians or whoever. And, and, you know, part of it, I think too, is to be focused on this government, this agent of this government, this is a hostile government. And the longer we pretend that China is really a good old chum that we're hoping to have a beer with and talk about climate change with, um, the longer they're gonna, they're, you know, we're gonna shake hands and realize we only have three fingers. It's, it's, it's a real problem. And, and when I say that, I'm, it, this isn't a matter of the other thing that bothers me so much is this talk of competition and our rivalry and so on. To me, this isn't a look. I don't want to play them next year and and tailgate. That's not what this should be about. This is a threat. This is a horrible, horrible government. And the the only thing that makes them seem any less so is how horrible all of our governments are. Which is doesn't make it less scary. It makes it more scary. Anyway, I, I'm, boy, I'm on my horse now. <laughs> You had four pieces you said that were uh, takedowns of individuals. Is the is the Wednesday piece that, or is that was the exception? No, the Wednesday piece is that. And I thought in retrospect, this is about uh, uh, Biden, President Biden. Trump called him Sleepy Joe. And, you know, it is kind of one of these things. Uh, uh, Nikki Haley sounds like she's told people she's going to be announcing for president. And I posted something on Facebook saying, uh, you know, gee whiz, somebody running for president. And, you know, the first thought isn't corruption, idiocy, uh, you know, dementia. Um, so it's, it's you know, it, it's the kind of thing where uh, Joe Biden gets a lot of credit, I think, for being not a bad guy, even though I think he's on the tank and has been for a long time. I think his son, Hunter, runs an operation that has kicked back money to him. And, of course, most Americans don't know that Hunter has paid for uh, all kinds of work on Joe's home. Tens, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. And I just I just know my dad was never expecting me to pay for a bunch of stuff on his home. Uh, but, you know, he wasn't the big guy. And I wasn't part of a criminal gang. So so uh, I, I don't have this picture of Joe Biden as kind of sleepy Joe. I do think he's he's not running the show there. But I think he's he's crooked enough that he doesn't mind them running the show for him and probably isn't isn't so sad about this, you know, various things that happen. And what we're talking about here and what is dead threatens to detonate housing around the, the country. There are some cities like San Francisco and others that have rent control. New York has rent control. And of course, found out years ago that Charlie Rangel, the good old congressman from there, was in a rent controlled apartment that he was using as an office, as I recall, which of course was also against the law. Uh, but, you know, the whole system is basically to get rid of the marketplace, 
and to allow the government to kind of set what rent should be. And Biden has, through executive order, told his folks, stop rent increases. Do whatever you can do to stop rent increases. And if they ever have a majority in the House again, and then um, they're likely to at some point, I mean, they are running against Republicans. And, um, you know, they're going to be pushing. They're already pushing for this AB5 in California that we've written a lot about in Common Sense, uh, that that basically makes everyone an employee. You can't be an independent contractor. And it's a stupid legislation that's cost a lot of people their jobs. And that a lot of the big outfits have been able to get out from under, but it's crushing the smaller guy, which, of course, the, the liberals always like the smaller guy they're crushing and hate the rich people they're helping all the time. I don't know how that works. But but anyway, this is this is rent control for the whole country. And this, uh, I happen to know a few people who are landlords. I happen to like them a whole lot. And if I ever need a place to stay, they have one. So they come in handy. And, uh, you know, they've been through hell through this, through so much of the pandemic, you couldn't foreclose on anybody. Which means, you know, if you're, if all your renters are multimillionaires, they probably just wrote the check every month the same as they always do. But if not, and they're struggling to get that rent money, they might have realized because somebody told them, you know what, well, you don't have to pay your rent. Because they're saying, no, nobody can be evicted. So lots of people didn't pay their rents. These are the things. Of course, that wasn't didn't seem to be big news. If anybody was foreclosing, that's big news. But no, no big news that they're not paying their rents. So this is something, it's just a subtle thing, not getting a lot of play that the Biden administration's doing that President Biden's doing that will make our housing worse, much worse, much more expensive, and much more another, you know, pay-to-play operation by our government. The piece is uh, detonators in place. It was February 1st. Um, the, only I, the only thing I would add is that it's frankly unconstitutional. There's, there's absolutely no constitutional warrant for rent control on the federal level. Yeah, I mean, there's there's just no there's no way it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But that doesn't stop Democrats. They don't really believe in the in the, that construction of the Constitution. No. And and it will be struck down just like a lot of the, the different mandates were struck down. But they they would just go do them again anyway. It's uh, we, we have no respect. People in government now, legislators, if it's someone says it's unconstitutional, that's not their that's not their job. Which is just like saying, I don't give a damn. I'm going to do it anyway, even though I took an oath to that Constitution, but I'm going to pretend that I can do anything I damn well please, and the and the judges will sort it out. That's not the oath they took. And it's, it's, it, it's like in any, it, it, if you got workers who don't really want to do the job right, if you've got, you know, it, 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 that's not that doesn't lead to success it leads to failure and it leads to problems and and in in government it always leads to more and more corruption so it's so it there's something feeding it now was friday piece political babes is that the one that you uh also in this we went after robert dover who is uh a nebraska state senator i'm sure otherwise (laughs) otherwise a really nice guy and uh Robert Dover has a bill, 
to weaken term limits. And he mentions that he's new in the Capitol, wasn't elected. He was appointed by the governor. This is his first term, his freshman term. And uh, and he's he's talked to people. He's talked to people and he has decided term nobody likes term limits. He said not a single person he spoke to like term limits. Now, he talked to legislators, former legislators, current legislators, not a single one like term limits. He talked to lobbyists, none of them like term limits. He talked to staffers, the staffers in the in the Capitol. They didn't like term limits either. And then he talked to state agency heads who for years we've been told really are taking advantage of the legislature. They didn't like term limits either. No one in Lincoln, anywhere close to the Capitol, like term limits. And this guy apparently didn't ask anybody else, like the people he's supposed to represent. But of course, nobody elected him. He was appointed. So he's he's from the political class. And he's somewhat clueless as to the fact that, well, not really, because he tells one of the newspapers, he says, uh, he says, I know this is popular with the people, with the electorate, the electorate. <laughs> and uh, that's like the people that he's supposed to represent. But he, he, he doesn't seem to think that's what he's supposed to do. He's representing the Capitol. And he points out that uh, with term limits, you don't have the consistency. The consistency that allows you to compromise between the legislators and the special interests. Um, these are his, his words, basically. Um, and and so, of course, it, it, it's, it's almost just a hoot because his whole thinking is to represent the capital and convince the folks back home of what the folks in the capital want. That's his job. Robert Dover is a state senator, one of 49 in the unicameral legislature of Nebraska. And he thinks his job is to represent Lincoln and the folks at the Capitol back to his district. And frankly, um, you know, it sounds really bad, but that's how everybody in Congress is, too. And that's how people all over the country, I mean, that's what they think. They may be smarter or savvier or more experienced. And in an interview, in a couple of newspaper articles, they haven't given up the whole game yet. But that's how they think. And uh, that, I think, is the most depressing part of folks. I'm When I used to go to Capitol Hill, uh, and and meet with different congressmen on the I, you know I'd usually take a cab on the way back and uh, and I I I would always think these guys are terrible thank God I'm doing term limits and then I would think and these are the good guys these are the guys who at least claim to be for it and I mean there were some very some some folks that I respect uh, I, I respect Mark Sanford who of course had a big scandal and so on but I still respect his honesty and and uh, and you know a nice enough person Matt Salmon from Arizona is somebody who I respect and someone who I disagreed with on different things and and knew well enough that you know we had we had had disagreements but 
respectful disagreements because, you know, he's a real person. Most, when I first got to Washington, so many of the people, you would meet them because they'd call up and scream. One congressman was going to beat me up. I was thinking, well, you sure picked a funny way to do it because over the phone, it's really hard to beat somebody up. And, uh, you know, these guys, um, prima donna is, is the term that that comes to me. The narcissist kind of, uh, but that's, those are, those are uh, one and the same kind of, but it's, it's uh, in Nebraska, we'll see what they're trying to do is just weaken the term limits, give themselves three terms instead of two, 50% longer. And there, all you have to do is you, you're, you're out four years, you can come back. They had a couple people come back this time. So in the, in the 49, they have two who've already served eight years previously who are freshmen now. But what they're really upset, like a lot of times they'll point out, well, you know, out of 49 people, we have 15 new people. As if that is just horrifying. And I'm thinking, oh, thank goodness, that'll give you some some new blood. So it's it's uh, age-old issues of term limits, but term limits is is the canary in the coal mine. And every time you check, if your state doesn't have term limits or your state has term limits, but the legislature is busy trying to kill them, then, you know, the canaries in the cage dead. And, and someday I'm hoping they'll look in that cage and see the canary has come back to life. But um, this is, it's an issue about them. And if they can get away with doing what they damn well please against. We just did a poll. We'll be releasing it in Nebraska next week. Over 70% of the people are against what they're doing, of course. And, you know, if you can get away with doing that on something that's just your own self-interest, think about what you can get away with when you've got some issue where this interest group wants this and this interest group wants that. Because then when someone attacks you, oh, no, I was doing this, and you've got defenders and everything else. And so it really is, if they can get away with this sort of thing, bad stuff happens. When In, in Arkansas, my home state where I grew up, they had uh, uh, real term limits, and they weakened them, uh, weakened them to 16 years in a, in a ballot measure that just lied to people, just told them ridiculous stuff that turns out not to have been true, like that it would stop lobbyists from giving gifts. That was in the first line. Um, and then it turns out, no, <laughs> they can still give gifts. Um, but but these sorts of things happen in Arkansas. After that, they had a round with, you know, the sponsor of that amendment went to prison. Uh, his, his other buddies of his and his little gang, they went to prison. Uh, it's... This is it's an age old fight. But when you see your your legislator doing these sorts of things and and just so obviously representing the capital interest back to his constituents instead of representing his constituents to the capital interests, we, we've got we got trouble right here in River City. Well, that piece was political babes. I'm not sure I understand the title. Is that because of he was a, He's a babe in the woods? He well, oh. his whole thing was that oh, we're not you know we're, we just just so tough to learn it. I I say in this piece he mentioned that he it's like drinking uh, water from a fire hose. <laughs> I mentioned that I hope he was able to find the bathrooms because you know they always would say they won't be able to find the bathrooms in their first term. 
In fact, in, in a couple states, our journalism as activists had maps of the Capitol with the ballot <laughs> marked out that they handed out to uh, incoming and, and all. You never know if somebody in their second term still hasn't figured out where the bathroom is. That might be a fun thing to give to every new legislator in the country. Just send it, send them a little a, a bathroom map, and and uh, and then and then explain uh, term limits. Okay, well that leaves Our, only one more piece in the week, and that and is probably different. the big story of the of the of the week, which is we, police supremacy. This is the Tyree Nichols case. Uh, I sat through. 26 minutes of that. Luckily, most of it was, you know, was not exciting. The exciting parts were not exciting either, just kind of ugly. And this is, uh, you know, this is a case of clearly this is not how police are supposed to subdue somebody and get them handcuffed. And one, they didn't get him handcuffed and they killed him. And so this is, this is a very ugly story, but it's also ugly to consider that this story started out as a story about racism, white supremacy, a black man who was killed. Turns out it was five black policemen who'd been charged with murder and who I think will end up being convicted. Um, we'll see. And so it's just, it, how's that about racism? Well, you could make some different arguments. And we linked to a piece by Van Jones, the uh, communist turned just normal liberal uh, commentator who is is actually sometimes uh, makes some interesting points, and it's like I, I like listening to people, regardless of what their label is. Uh, and and it, it it was an interesting piece, but what he misses is that this story is really about police thinking they have the right to beat the hell out of somebody. Now they probably didn't want him to die, but they seem to think they could just viciously beat somebody. And was it because he was black somehow? Well, they're black. So that doesn't quite work up. Is it because he ran away? Well, maybe, but you know, white people run away sometimes too. And they get beat up sometimes too. And, and we can argue about numbers and so on, but it's like, sometimes it's good to just look at what's right in front of you. And what's right in front of us is that Police have tremendous power and leeway and and qualified immunity from any sort of, you know, repercussion and accountability for them using too much force. And, you know, I think you could end um, um, qualified immunity. You certainly could restrict it in all kinds of ways. Our legislature's could speak on this, are the public is ready for that debate. But it strikes me that this rush to always label everything racism stands in the way of that. It's at the very least, it's it's kind of a diversion that keeps people from being focused on it. And um and I think it's a pretty big diversion. And it's also harmful in its own right because it will start to separate people. Um, there's most people in the United States, I think, are very much pro-police, like the idea of having them in case they need them. And they're also very much police not beating up and killing people, police not pulling over somebody who has a taillight out 
and who, you know, mentions that, hey, my hands are up and I have a gun over here. It's legally owned. And then they shoot him six times, you know, and then there's there's cases like that. And there's then there's the Kenosha case. Uh, I think it's Jacob Blake was the was the person who's still alive, but was shot like seven times, but who had a felony warrant for a violent crime, sexual abuse. Uh, and they tried to arrest him and he got the policeman in a headlock and got away and started to get in a car with kids to drive away. If you're a policeman, you can't let that happen. And yet it's almost as if the public reacts the same way to both of those sets of circumstances or the, the Michael Brown case in, in Ferguson, which my group Liberty initiative fund worked with folks in Ferguson to pass a police camera measure there because the police had cameras then. They just didn't have any law that said that they had to wear them. But of course, it turns out that that um, Michael Brown appears from two investigations to have been the aggressor, to have reached into the car and gotten a hold of the gun and fired it once in the car. And it, you know, and, and look, I wasn't there. I don't know. But I I wrote columns at the time where we talked about the fact that uh, on both sides, everyone jumps to it's this or it's this. And it's like you weren't there. You don't know. It has nowhere is this information available to anyone. But you seem to know it already. And it's a huge problem. And my first column was basically saying this should be looked into. And but in researching it, I found out that that uh, which the media around me for 24 hours had not told me that he was involved in an altercation uh, where he stole some stuff from a store. Now, later it came out, someone suggested that that store was really running drugs for him somehow, and they had shorted him on the thing. So it was okay, maybe to who knows. But see, all of these things actually matter. The cases actually matter. Um I was I was with my mom, uh, my late mother, uh, uh, back in the summer and uh, and the Kyle Rittenhouse. I was taking care of her for a few days and the Kyle Rittenhouse trial was on. So I watched, you know, we watched a lot of that trial and uh, amazing what and I tried to follow it some, you know, I'm busy, but I I care about these things and and uh, stuff that you learn in the trial that you didn't know. And especially stuff you learn in the trial that everything you've been told sort of doesn't measure up anymore. That's really disappointing. And uh, so this, uh, uh, you know, the criminal justice stuff is the most depressing because, of course, it's people being killed or hurt severely. Um, But also because it's used to rip people apart and not to bring people together. And the truth is our emotions, when we hear these things, we almost all feel the same way. And so it ought to bring us together. We wanna fix this, trust me. It's it, even among you know your worst sort, nobody likes to see somebody killed for no reason. And, and you know, it, it, it just seems to me that this is, the, when I think about the criminal justice area of of policy and so on and the reality 
of the criminal justice system, it's it's just pitiful because the the public is for all kinds of reforms that would make things better. And the political system doesn't give a damn, really, and is fighting about other stuff and and doesn't seem to do anything about it. And and that's true. Left, right, in between. It's, it's really pathetic. And in fact, one of one of the elements of it is one of the major pieces of legislation got passed, got passed when Trump was president. And so it's like that somehow the left and the right was better able to get together on criminal justice when Trump was president than it could today. I mean, I, I wouldn't be shocked. I know that's the case. Uh, it's this, like a lot of issues are political parties People view issues as the whole point of politics. I care about this, therefore I care about politics. Politicians view issues as things to levers to use to get votes. So if the issue is solved, it's kind of like the parking problem I used to complain about at my local Starbucks, and then they painted lines and solve the problem. And I thought, look, now I have nothing to complain about anymore. It's and uh, but I don't run for office, so I you know it didn't really work. But if you do run for office, you don't want the problem solved. At least, you know maybe you do because you're a good person, and that overwhelms your desire to stay in office. But my my uh, limited experience on Capitol Hill and in other state legislatures and in the process is that that's they want what they want and for them they come first and if if that means that geez we don't solve these problems we just keep talking about them well i don't know how many problems do we get solved and how many do we keep talking about well that sounds like an end to the podcast i think it is this has been this week of common sense for the transition week between january and february 2023 my name is Timothy Verkula, and for Paul Jacob, I thank you for tuning in and for visiting thisiscommonsense.org. Mm-hmm.